Welcome to Gospel Wabi Sabi. I'm Jeff Ebert, and today we're going to explore God's good news for some very imperfect people. In fact, they are hopeless cases apart from Jesus intervening in their lives. So this is season one, episode 13. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. And while you're turning there, let me just remind you that if this podcast is meaningful for you, if it's helping you draw closer to Christ, if it's giving you a richer understanding of Scripture, I hope you'll consider becoming a supporter to help with my production costs. You can find a link in the episode description that'll take you to the supporter page, and you can check out the options there. And if you do become a supporter, I'd like to send you the PDF of the script for each episode. You can build your own kind of file on the Gospel of John that way. So if you'd please send me your email, I'll connect with you that way. My email address is in the episode description, or you can always reach me through my website, jeffebert.com. William Holman Hunt was a 19th century British artist, and he did a painting of Jesus in his carpenter shop, stretching out his arms after a long day's work. And as he stretches out his arms, a beam of light from the setting sun hits Jesus and casts a shadow on the wall behind him, a shadow of the cross, pointing to the ultimate reason for his coming, to die on the cross for our sins. And in a sense, the shadow of the cross is behind Jesus all of his life. And today, as we look at the third of the seven signs or miracles by Jesus that John uses to construct his gospel, uh, he begins to foreshadow the conflict that will lead to the climax of this gospel, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Two things happen in chapter five. There's a healing of a paralyzed man, and then there's the reaction, the controversy that resulted from this miracle. Most people don't realize the impact of this particular sign. From a human point of view, this one caused Jesus the greatest problems and created the greatest opposition. The religious leaders never forgave him for what he does here. What Jesus did and said that day ends up costing him his life. So let's look at it together. John 5 verses 1 through 18. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews, and now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And then now this portion is probably not in the original Bible text, but was added later to kind of explain the superstition that surrounded this pool of water. Let me continue to read. And they waited for the moving of the waters. For time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such, each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? 
The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There's a lot of hopelessness in this world. People are in pain, mentally, emotionally, physically. People who have given up, who shuffle through one day to the next. Nothing dramatizes hopelessness better than this pathetic pool in Bethesda. This pool that had had a superstition attached to it. Hang around the pool, and whenever the water moves, supposedly stirred by an angel's wings, just dive in there as quick as you can, and you'll be here to keep cured of whatever ails you. Numbers 2, 3, 4, and 5, all they got was wet. But number 1, that person gets healed. It's a strange kind of superstition because there's no recorded uh, history that it ever actually happened. I mean, no one really knows. There's no record of it. But it was a powerful myth, but a very sad situation. It's not a happy crowd, these people sitting around this pool. It's not a spa. No one's going off the diving board. It's like going to a doctor's office during a flu epidemic, a lot of coughing and wheezing going on. And if you're not sick when you go in, you will be by the time you come out. It was a place for desperate people, hopeless cases. No medicine of their time had been able to cure them. And this was a last pitiful plan, a dumping ground for the chronically ill. What chance did they really have? But they were betting their lives on it, sort of like mortgaging your house to buy lottery tickets. I'll get into the pool first and be healed. It was such a losing proposition. Then Jesus enters in. We don't know who's with him, but he must have heard about this awful place, and he heads straight for it. He reached out to this paralyzed man. Now, why did he reach out to this one and not the others? I mean, it's a crowded place. Maybe he was the most hopeless, dropped off 38 years ago, trying to get into the pool all that time, had some kind of paralysis so the others beat him in. You'd think... It would have, he would have made it in somewhere along the way. I mean, he had 38 years to figure this out. It's so pathetic that he hadn't figured out how to be close to the water and be the first one in the pool. I mean, this was a useless guy. But Jesus specializes in those that are helpless. He's the master of these hopeless situations. He is there for people who finally get to the point in their lives when they say, I can't handle this anymore. I'm not going to try. I'm going to have to trust God. There's a statement that a lot of people think is biblical, and you've heard it. God helps those who help themselves. So many people think that comes out of the Bible, but it doesn't. It comes from Ben Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac. Some people think it's great. You work as hard as you can, and then God will give you that last little push, that last boost you need at the very end. Sounds practical, but it's actually poor theology. I mean, it is true that we cooperate with God and we're saved. It is true we have to take responsibility for our actions, our lives, our consequences, our choices. We are to use our talents and abilities and our mind and our reason that God gave us. But God helps those who can't help themselves. That's what grace means. 
God helps those who can't help themselves and those who don't deserve help, who have not done anything to earn any special attention. He specializes in those. The people who can help themselves often don't even want God in their lives. They think that they're either, uh, you know, it's kind of either end of the spectrum, either self-loathing or or they feel self-sufficient. And both are equally wrong. Jesus said at another healing in Mark chapter 2, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, "I, I didn't come here to help those who think they're spiritually okay spiritually healthy. If you don't see the sickness in your soul, I can't help you. Jesus specializes in the helpless. God helps those who help themselves, not according to this story. Jesus helps those who at some point are able to swallow their pride, who can say, I can't work this out on my own. I can't work my way into heaven. I can't lift myself into glory. Lord, move in and give me some help. If we're still trying in our own strength and strategy to make life work on our own, there's very little Christ can do for us. If we want to get to the place of helplessness, we look to Jesus and say, can you do anything about me? Can you help me? Then we cooperate with Jesus in faith like this man cooperated. Jesus told him, stand up and pick up his bed. He didn't respond by saying, well, that's a sick joke. You know I can't pick up my bed. If I could pick up my bed, I would have picked up my bed. I would have been out of here years ago. Jesus is saying, cooperate with me. And this instills faith in the man. He believed what Jesus said was true, and he did what Jesus asked him to do. That's probably the simplest definition of faith. He believed what Jesus said was true, and he did what Jesus asked him to do. If we're still trying to do life on our own rather than admitting our need, then then Jesus and Christianity, it, it really won't touch us. But when we get to that place where we can say, God be merciful to me, a sinner, he will move in close with all his power. Let's cooperate together and make this thing work. We have to acknowledge that the only reason Jesus came to this earth was because we are helpless. To do what the nobleman did in the last week's story and what this man did, We come to Jesus in faith, belief coupled with obedience. Earlier, Jesus had asked him, do you want to be healed? Is this one of the dumbest questions you've ever heard? Be careful about putting it in that category. Some people, many people don't really want to be healed. So many people want to go it alone. They're frozen in their anger. They're wrapped up in their depression. They're addicted to their sin. They're locked into their pride and self-centeredness. Or to their self-hatred. I mean, a lot of addicts don't get the help they need because they wallow in self-pity and self-loathing and self-hatred. And those are things that are hard to give up. And so they complain and complain and complain, but are unwilling to consider change, not willing to surrender self to Christ, not willing to give up control. People who want to sit on the throne of their own lives and refuse to give God his proper place as Lord, they're not going to get much help from Jesus. Do you want to get well? It's not a bad question. Do you want your life to be better, to be different? Christ can do it, but how much are you willing to give? Because it costs you your whole heart surrendered to him. This miracle quickly leads to conflict, and then what is called the first discourse of Jesus. A beautifully rich theological and practical statement by Jesus about his purpose and his power. It establishes for us what Jesus was like and what his real message was and is today. 
It establishes in the minds of his enemies that Jesus needed to be killed. You would think people would be happy for the man, think that they would rejoice over what Jesus had done. But you see, their whole concept of God was based on one principle, follow the rules. Follow the rules and you'll be okay with God. No love, no relationship, just rules. It's pure legalism and it pours cold water on everything else. They don't care about this man, only they care for the law. And one of the big rules was no work on the Sabbath, right? That's one of the top 10. They developed a tremendous set of rules after God gave the Ten Commandments. This is number four. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. That's Exodus 20, verse 8. A day set aside for the whole community to rest and focus on their God. Okay, then, well, if I'm not supposed to work, what constitutes work? Well, that's where they came up with to try and trying to define it exactly. They came up with a million different ways you could violate the Sabbath. One way was that you could not carry any burden on the Sabbath because that was considered work. A woman could wear no jewelry because that was a burden. If you had uh, been repairing a hole in your robe and accidentally left a needle in there while walking around on the Sabbath, you could be accused of being in sin because you were carrying this needle. Makes a lot of sense, right? So here comes this guy with a mattress under his arm, kicking up his heels, and he runs into a couple of rabbis with misplaced priorities, and they tell him, you can't carry that. What? You, you can't carry that. What a sad dialogue. This is the ultimate of legalism. Can you imagine not healing on the Sabbath, that God has some rule against helping people? They completely misunderstood the nature of God. In a former church, there was a elderly woman who was kind of, you know, the, the patriarch or matriarch, I guess, of the congregation, Mrs. P, we'll call her. And as a young uh, associate pastor, I was pretty much told I had to go and have tea with Mrs. P if I wanted to have any legitimacy for my ministry at the church. She held that kind of sway. And in talking about her, you know, her life and her childhood, Mrs. P grew up in the time, you know, before World War I when there were just wagons and horse and buggy and stuff like that. She lived kind of in the country. And she mentioned in the mornings they would walk three or four miles to church one direction and then walk home. And then in the evening, they would walk three or four miles in the other direction to another church for had an evening service, and then they'd walk home. But they were very uh, strict about keeping the Sabbath. I mean, you could walk six miles, but you couldn't do anything else. And one time, she was filing her nails with a, uh, with a file that I guess her, her parents had given her. And her mother came up and slapped her across the face. And she said, young lady, we don't do any work on the Sabbath, and filing your nails is work. And I was just aghast when she told me that story. But what was even more shocking was the next thing she said, because she said, you know, my mom was right. And then Mrs. Palmer, or Mrs. P, launched into this uh, um, whole uh, harangue about the women in the church who were out shopping and doing other kinds of things on Sundays, you know. But her whole attitude was one of such strict legalism, even for the church today. This is so hard for us to comprehend because in our culture, we have really lost any sense of Sabbath rest. I mean, the pendulum has swung to the other side. It used to be that Sundays were exempt from some activities, and then we lost Sunday afternoons, and we've lost Sunday mornings. 
Years ago, I was at a local clergy meeting with the father of a Roman Catholic parish, and he was complaining about the noise from the kids' Pop Warner football teams practicing next to his church on Sunday mornings. And they were all kids and grown-ups from his church, you know? All kinds of excuses about why kids have to play sports and stuff on Sundays. But the bottom line is that we just don't take God's command about Sabbath. We don't take it seriously at all, not just with kids' sports. I don't mean to single that out. My concern that as a culture and as Christians, we have no sense of Sabbath rest. So it's no wonder families and people and, you know, we're stressed out, frazzled with fraying nerves. We have no sense of rest in our lives, but that's a whole different podcast. These extreme legalists challenge Jesus at the point of healing on the Sabbath. Just hold it over till Monday. These sick people, they'll still be here. And Jesus's answer was devastating to them. Have you ever seen a thunderstorm coming from a long distance away? It's not common on the East Coast, but out in the Midwest or in the open plains and flat country in the South, you can see the storm coming. You can hear this deep rumble of a big storm from far away. Well, we hear a rumble in this first statement of Jesus. He says something that cuts these people to the center of their self-righteous being. He shredded them. He says, my father is always working, and I too am working. In this statement, he identifies himself in a father-son relationship with Almighty God. And they got the point. So much so that we're told in verse 18 that they, from then on they sought to kill him because Jesus broke the Sabbath, and more so, he called God his father, making himself equal with God. What Jesus is saying here is that God continues his work of love even on the Sabbath, and so so does Jesus. He did not violate the law of God, and he didn't care about their petty rules. Yes, we need to set aside a day to worship and refresh, but human need must always be helped. God never takes a day off from that. Compassion for people is never something to be laid aside. Jesus goes on and says a few more specific things in the next few verses, and we're going to get into all of this in the next podcast. But he says in verse 19, whatever the father does, the son also does. Verse 21, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even though so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Verse 22, moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. Verse 23, he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Verse 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. This is like watching an old episode of the TV version of Batman, you know, where they'd go boom, pow, zap. Jesus is just like nailing them left and right. He's telling them so clearly and claiming so clearly his divine uh, mission and his divine personhood. And he's challenging them by believing in him and in his purpose to cross over from death to life because the power of all eternity to do all of those things, that power is in his hands. On the strength of this passage alone, we find the answer to one of life's most basic questions. What is God like? Because when we look at Jesus, we are looking at God. Jesus Christ and God the Father are one and the same. All the rhetoric about diversity and inclusiveness on this point, Jesus was 100% exclusive. He was the unique, the one and only, 
the very person on God, uh, the very person of God in human skin. No other can be compared to him. No other can do what he did. No other can do what he does. No other can take you into God's presence because he is God's presence. He doesn't share that role with anyone, any other religious teacher or leader, no matter how good a person that person may be. Jesus stands supreme and he stands alone. And that's why they wanted to kill him back then. They understood the dramatic nature of what he was saying. And friends, I believe that's why people are so afraid of Jesus today. Well, they won't say it that way, but that's why so many people really kind of want to shred the Bible or censor freedom of religious expression, uh, want to trample on the church. And that's throughout the world, but also here in the United States. Jesus specializes in hopeless cases. He connects us for all eternity. And there's a lot of good there, true, but not good enough. We need someone from the outside ourselves to do a work of transformation within us. He cared enough to accomplish the remedy for us. We all need some healing. We want to place ourselves right at like that paralyzed man to say, we cannot help ourselves. But he comes to us with that exact same question. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And are you willing to cross over from death to life through trusting in Jesus? We'll continue in chapter 5 next time. Have a great week.